Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined by my dear friend, Marianne Azevedo, a senior reporter here at TechCrunch. Marianne, hello. Hi. How are you today, Alex? I'm hype because we are recording live. I love doing this. We are now recording live every two weeks, which means that we have to do everything correctly the first time. We can't just recut the intro at the end. We can't make mistakes. It means that there's kind of a higher level of demand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's an adrenaline rush. Yes. I have to do things like wash my face. It's a very high standard of quality. (laughs) A quick note, though, uh, Natasha Moscarinas is off for this particular episode, and she is mostly on vacation next week. I promise she is not gone from the show. She will be back. She is a key member of the equity team. However, she's on a very short pause, which is totally deserved because she works super duper hard. Marianne, so quickly, don't forget everyone else that you can ask questions and hop in. We'll get to those at the end when we finish recording the main episode. And then on the show rundown front, we are going to talk about Han Ventures, a startup called Jeeves that is not a search engine. Notes to come about that. Ramp and the value of fintech predictions, if you will. CEO change, what that means for startups. And then also a very tiny note at the end about a public market debut that's quite interesting. And then we're also going to praise Marianne's upcoming newsletter at the variant. But I think with that, we can start. Yeah, actually, before we get started, there is one other thing you failed to mention, Alex, and that is that you have a new role. Do you want to tell us about it? I do have a new role. Yeah, I like to just go by reporter comma TechCrunch. I'm going to kind of generally keep that vibe. But my official title is now editor in chief of TechCrunch Plus. So I'm now in charge of the paid part of TC, a project that I've had the good fortune of working on for over two years now, Marianne, I think. Yeah, two and change. Yeah, we're building out the team. I'm really excited about it. I have... (laughs) I've had a busy four days so far. Systems, learnings, meetings, just tons of stuff. So I over-caffeinated for the show. (laughs) Well, I can tell (laughs) you, we're all super excited about your new role, Alex. And you've been like such a big, prolific contributor to TC Plus over the past couple of years. So this seemed like a really logical move for you. And it's going to kick ass. Thank you very much. I want to point out that if anyone is worried, I am not leaving equity. You can't get me off this show with a crowbar. And I specifically negotiated keeping my morning column and the podcast in my work mix because I love them too much to stop. So Marianne, you're stuck with me for a little bit longer and tough. Yeah, good. Good news. All right, let's talk about some deals of the week. My deal of the week is actually not a deal at all, but a new fund. Essentially, finally, Katie Hahn, the former Andreessen Horowitz crypto partner, announced her new fund and her new firm, which is called Hahn Ventures. H-A-U-N is how you spell it. And I don't mind the name in this case, Marianne, because she is the brand. You know, yeah. She's the reason why it raised $1.5 billion, And I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm just kind of hyped to see competition in the space and also more women leading major crypto funds, given how the gender ratios can be skewed a little bit. Yeah, no, agreed. The name is fitting and definitely very nice to see a woman at the helm. It's impressive that she left Andreessen to do this. And I believe she brought a few others with her, right? She did. I think one of them was Rachel Horowitz and a couple of folks that she's brought along with her. My question is really how well do the two groups get along? That's the thing I'm not sure about. I think they're going to do some co-investing and so forth. And I think it's going to start pretty positive, but you and I know that VCs are ever so slightly competitive. So I don't think that the goodwill is going to last forever. There's got to be some tension, right? I mean, this is a competitive space. She used to work at that firm and there has to be some tension, but Like you said, they're probably going to co-invest together. They're going to have to try to be amicable, at least in the beginning. Yeah, trying to be amicable is going to be fun. I think, if I recall my notes correctly, Katie Hahn is on the board of OpenSea, which is also an Andreessen investment. Andreessen's still on the board of Coinbase, which put money into OpenSea via Coinbase Ventures. 
<laughs> and I just bring that up to highlight how intertwined this all is. And so I wonder if you have to get along kind of by default, else you're going to end up exploding your network to some degree. Yeah, I think the crypto world is still relatively small, even though it feels huge. So, you know, the people in it are all going to be connected in one way or another. So there's going to have to take some concerted extra effort to keep nice. Just for that reason yeah. that you mentioned, there's still going to be these ongoing relationships with the startups to be, too. To be clear, we're not asking for this. We're, we're, we're <laughs> forecasting. What I would love more than anything would be for Katie to stick both of her fingers in both of Andreessen Horowitz's eyes and cause some drama because that would be fascinating to see who has more in-market brand right now when it comes to landing the hottest deals. But Marianne, before we change topics and talk about a particular round, here's a question that I can't get out of my head. Why is everything in crypto so expensive? Because Han raised a $1.5 billion fund and Andreessen has been deploying capital in the crypto space like mad. FTX Ventures, $2 billion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why is this stuff so expensive to build? Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't answer that question either. I don't know. There's a lot of capital out there for crypto companies. Yeah. I'm not sure why it takes so much to either get them off the ground or grow them. With the volatile nature of crypto, I, I just think that I really like, I'm impressed because to me, these are huge, huge bets on the space. Huge bets. I mean, think back to like, I forget the year, 2012, 2013, when Andreessen Horowitz proper raised its first fund that was over a billion dollars and everyone lost their mind. Everyone was like, oh, how are you ever going to return a billion dollars at venture level metrics? And now there's a bunch of billion dollar plus funds just for crypto, not to mention the fact that there's other CVCs, other venture firms involved and so forth. It's just a staggering amount of money. I guess for the sake of pension funds around the world, we should hope that crypto does well, because if it doesn't, some things are going to go south. But enough doom scrolling. Let's talk about Jeeves. I'm fascinated by this company and I have many questions. Okay, yeah. So Jeeves is one of those fintechs that I've been writing about repeatedly over the past year, which is a recurring theme in the fintech space, where companies or startups that are raising early rounds and then in quick succession, raising more money at higher and higher valuations. Specifically with Jeeves, I wrote this week that they raised $180 million and they quadrupled their valuation to $2.1 billion. Their last raise was less than seven months ago. I mean, that is just insane. Yeah. So at a minimum, there is growth behind the raise. There is growth behind the valuation increase. Let's talk about the market a little bit. I was reading your story and it's a little complex because it seems that what Jeeves does is sit in the back end and allow companies to transact inside of countries in local currencies without having to move money cross border and handle FX fees. Is that close? Yeah, it is quite complex. And I think that's what kind of makes it a little different because to be clear, it does describe itself as a corporate card and expense management company, which puts it into that category of yeah. like ramp and Brex and airbase. But there are a few differences, as we said. One of the things, and I really like it, they say that they want to help companies transact across countries, across currencies, yeah. as you put it, but they're providing the infrastructure. And Dilip, the founder, says he feels like that's the biggest difference between Jeeves and other companies in the space because they're not just competing by offering credit or who can offer companies cash faster, that they have this infrastructure, they own the stack, and they feel like that kind of gives them an edge in this space. I'm really here for the international play, because when I think about the corporate spend space, I think about it in two kind of main buckets. There's the domestic kind of like fight between the players that we'll talk about in a second. And then there's international players. And I think you and I can name one or two from Latin America, maybe one from Mexico, one from Colombia, one from Brazil, whatever. But the idea of having a company that is set up and designed to facilitate cross-border transactions, one, makes good sense. And two, it fits thematically into the thing we've been talking about a lot, which is every company is remote now. And so yeah. moving money around, if you're going to have corporate spend 
in management makes a lot of sense. Like you can't send your guy in, I don't know, Bangkok euros because that's not the local currency. Yeah. I mean, Jeeves has customers in 24 countries across North America, Oof. Latin America, UK, Europe. They're mostly remote first, but they have offices in I think Mexico City, Sao Paulo, I believe London, and the fourth city I don't recall off the top of my head. But yeah, so they have like this banking as a service infrastructure. So I'm going to give you an example that I put yeah, in the sure. story. For example, a growing business can use a Jeeves card in Barcelona, pay it back in euros, use the same card in Mexico and pay it back in pesos. And that cuts back on the foreign exchange fees. I mean, this is this seems pretty revolutionary, in my opinion. Well, the question is, how long does it stay distinct? And how fast do other players look at this and go, oh, this is obviously seen market resonance via the growth numbers. We probably need to build this. And how do they go about kind of like trying yeah. to, I mean, I don't think this is that easy to replicate, though. You know, it's not that easy to replicate. They've obviously got like a first or early mover advantage. So I think it would be tough. Surely other companies can try. But I mean, they're pretty far along. When we looked at the growth metrics, it was, let's see, since September alone, when they raised their Series B, revenue has increased by 900%. Now, we don't have the base obviously, but the figure in and of itself is pretty impressive. And then Dilip told me that the first two months of 2022, they brought in more revenue than all of 2021. Yeah. I mean, that's what you hope to see from a startup, right? That's the point of raising venture capital for high growth businesses is you can play by a different set of rules effectively while things are going nuts. And I think doing your whole last year's revenue in two thirds of one quarter in the next year is pretty good and kind of fits. Yeah, even though we don't know the numbers, it sounds pretty positive. And another thing about this is really interesting. Dilip was pretty outspoken about how the deal came together. And he noted that even though he got like five term sheets and it came together relatively quickly compared to how other companies might be raising, he said he still did see a greater level of due diligence on the part of investors than he did with his previous two rounds. So he felt a greater satisfaction in raising this round than he did with the other two because he felt like he had to work a little harder for it. So I thought that was interesting as well. Okay. I know we need to move on, but super briefly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It was, was it harder to raise this round for Jeeves? Yes. But they did raise another round within a year at 4x the price, and it's nine figures of capital. So it's like if things went from like 100% to like 90%. You know what I mean? Like it's still, 10 years ago, this would have been like the deal of the year. I know. If this had happened. And so like- Shout out to Leap for sharing actually how they feel and what changed. But like, let's keep in mind that we've gone from like super insane to like merely insane is is the market change. And it's starting to feel normal, which is also kind of crazy. Starting to feel normal. I feel like 2020 and 2021 literally broke every rule that I had learned about finance, the markets, venture, like just. I know. Remember when Unicorn was like a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was even further back. That was like 2016, 2017, I feel like was that. And yeah, that was a different era. Speaking of unicorns, though, massive valuation increases the corporate spend world. One of our favorite companies, quote, quote, is back on the show. Marianne, who is it? Yeah. So Ramp is in the news again. It raised this week of it was $550 million in debt financing. So that was cured $200 million in equity valuation doubled to $8.1 billion, which is absolutely crazy because I don't think they're even three years old yet. And so this was reported actually by the information early February. So it's not shocking news, but it's Ramp just confirmed it. It looks like Ramp is ramping up. 
their valuation here with this new money. Hey, oh, sorry, I was just waiting no, to say some dumb. I almost rant used pun. it in my headline. I really did, and then then didn't. But thank you for saying what you, like you always do. Like you read my mind, Alex. You've been doing this for years. Like you read, you can tell what I'm thinking, but don't articulate it out loud. This is scary in a little bit. People don't realize how much time we've spent on the phone together <laughs> in the last like five years. Okay, it's been a lot. Yeah, that's and one Slack. of the, the nice things about having. Oh well, Slack. I mean, oh, I, Slack is also Twitter, and but I mean, just like on the phone talking. We've yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going somewhere and then I made a terrible joke and derailed I'm us. I'm sorry, but hey, another interesting thing about this is Founders Fund led oh, the yes. round and it's the fourth time that it led a round for ramp. And so I feel like that's extreme validation. I haven't heard of one firm like yeah. leading four rounds, I think in a row for a startup. That's that's kind of different. I'm sure it's happened one or two times before, but not that I can bring up to memory. And what's funny is this is an extreme version of how much things have changed back to our earlier point, because in the 90s, if you couldn't find a new next lead investor, it was a negative signal that you couldn't attract more capital to your firm and you, right. your other VC had to step in and solve the problem. Now in the more competitive world, people say, if you don't have the same investor for approximate rounds, do they not want it? Yeah. Why, so it's flipped. Is it's there like something wrong if the existing backers don't want to keep coming back and put more money? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I want to make a point about how much Ramp has changed our perspective on its company, though, mm-hmm. because if you go back in time to the first time we covered it, I think it was Roman who wrote about their launch and their like seed or series A. Right. And at the time, okay, let's just be honest. Everyone thought they were kind of a Brex knockoff, right? Yeah. And Another like, corporate card company. You know, Boring one at that. And their early focus on spend management and kind of saving money resonated and they've managed to parlay a late start into an $8.1 billion valuation. I mean, they're so. doing something right. Just like Jeeves, they're not giving out hard revenue figures, unfortunately. But Eric Gleiman, the CEO, says they saw close to a 10x bump in revenue year over year in 2021, which is huge. They've got more than 5,000 businesses using Ramp. They're saying they're powering $5 billion in annualized payments volume. Customer yeah. base is up 7x. Cardholder growth is up 15x. So there's a lot of upward trending here. Yeah. And just thinking in kind of gross revenue terms, how big is Ramp? Well, they make their money off interchange. As we know, they're not charging for software like Brex and Airbase are. So we can kind of think of them as a currently not, not a one trick pony, but a one river delta. There you yep. go. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> terrible. And if you think about interchanges being like, I don't know, a percent and a half, maybe all the way up to like 2%. Well, one and a half percent of 5 billion, which is their current spend volume is 75 million. So they're obviously scaling into the nearly nine figure revenue side of things, which puts them on an IPO path, which explains why they're valued so highly. Question is, what's the multiple? How expensive is it? And how fast can they grow into their new price? Yeah, I kind of appreciate you're doing the math on that, Alex. That's why it's, you're so good at that. Also, I think it's interesting how Ramp has, as you said, expanded over time. Like they expanded into the travel space earlier this year. Oh, yeah. All the companies it feels like in this space are kind of branching out and doing different things because they want to be all things to all companies. So that's also fascinating to watch. It's all hail the fintech blob. I swear to you, all fintech companies end up being the same. And I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This one's like tasting like chicken. But like, this is an example of it. Pretty soon Ramp is going to add cash management accounts and a way to invest corporate balances. And then it's just going to be like Silicon Valley Bank, but digital. I'm fascinated by these companies. And as a kind of a segue into the next thing, I also liked Eric Gleiman from the beginning. He's a nice guy. Really, really comes across as quite humble. Yeah. And there is a correlation in my experience between CEOs that are 
pleasant to talk to. Not nice to us per se, or like overly chummy, but just like people from whom you can talk with and learn and company success, which fits into my broader no jerks paradigm. Yeah, I agree. I feel like humility is quite refreshing in these fast growing startups. Eric falls into that bucket. I would say Delete from Jeeves also does. And Mm. so I agree with you that that's not a coincidence with the fact that these companies are also fast growing. They probably inspire their employees in a way that an arrogant CEO would not. I can't name a single example of an arrogant <laughs> CEO like Vishal Garg and Better.com and what that might do to a company. <laughs> Perfect example, Alex. Okay. Maybe we should stop kicking that particular dead know. horse at some point in time. <laughs> in the meantime, it is a fun horse to kick. Let's move along on the topic of CEOs, which is where I wanted to get us because we have seen Marianne some changes at a couple companies that matter. Mm-hmm. And I want to start off with, and I'm going to be reading a little bit from my notes here. So if you see me looking away, that's why Kickstarter's change. And this was Aziz Hassan and he's stepping down and he is blogging about it. The COO is stepping in. So obviously a CEO change that is well-planned. This is not a shock change to the company. Been CEO for three years and was CEO through some controversial times. There was the Kickstarter kind of unionization push that he was supposed to and all this. It got us talking about CEO changes in general, and that brings us to CityBlock. Yeah, a quick note about Aziz. He cited personal reflection as the reason that he was stepping down, plus wanting to spend time with his family. So I think it's interesting that CEOs are becoming more transparent about their reasons for stepping down. And in in the case of CityBlock Health, we saw a similar situation. The former CEO, Ia Rom, I'm also reading a bit from notes. So he took a temporary leave in late 2021, and he very publicly said he wanted to focus on his own experience with depression and the long-term effects of trauma. So I appreciate that these CEOs are being more public, being more human about the struggles that they're facing as leaders in these roles, because we all face them, we just don't talk about them publicly. So I feel like they're sending a message of, you're not the only one who might be feeling depression, or you're not the only one that wishes they had more time to spend with their family. So I applaud that. And in the case of CityBlock Health, co-founder and president and I don't want to butcher her name, Toyin Ajayi, has now stepped yeah. in as a CEO of the company. And for those who don't know, CityBlock Health focuses on delivering comprehensive quality care to the underserved population who rely on Medicare and Medicaid here in the U.S. It's raised a total of $900 million, valued about $6 billion. I think what they're doing sounds pretty awesome. I'm here for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm just in awe of how big the world of startups is when a company can have raised $900 million at a $6 billion valuation. And I I hear about it when the CEO changes. Yeah, agreed. And I feel like that's in part because what they do is so extremely important, but it doesn't necessarily fall into the category of like sexy, which is a little unfortunate and says something, in my opinion, about the startup world. But I'm glad to see that it has raised and that it appears to be doing well. Ajayi or Toyan is a former practicing physician. So she she understands, you know, she understands this space or industry. So anyway, I think like bottom line is CEOs are people too. <laughs> I, you know, that's not where I wanted this particular segment to go, but I think you've actually took it to a better place than where I was going to drive it to. I was going to talk about like, you know, CEO change and then culture changes and that can lead to strategy pivots or, you know, like a different way of hiring or whatever. But like, I think this is actually a better point because, all right, we're on our podcast. We can say whatever we want. When, when I ended up going to rehab and kind of getting out, like I made the conscious choice just to kind of talk about it because I was shocked at how many people had suffered from addiction or had family members that have and so forth. And it made me mad because people hadn't been talking about it. And then when I went, all of a sudden the door was open and I was like, this is silly, you know? And I'm on anti-anxiety meds. There you go. So like, 
I think talking about how we work out our bodies with exercise is the same thing as how we take care of our minds. You know, we share one, why not the other? So I'm here for CEOs setting the example of being what Natasha would say is vulnerable, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things the pandemic did is kind of normalize that it's okay to talk about your mental health and it doesn't, there shouldn't be a stigma around it if you feel anxious or if you're feeling down. So, you know, again, a silver lining coming out of a terrible global pandemic. I think, you know, I'm impressed they see are saying, you know what, I need to step back. It's so much better than trying to keep on in a role if you are feeling depressed or overwhelmed or whatever the case may be. I think it says a lot about the leadership of the company and it should not necessarily signal a negative thing. Yeah. And then one more little caveat, and then we need to talk about Forge. But like in the original setup of this part of the show, I was thinking about other CEO changes and how they've impacted companies and also how some companies haven't changed CEOs and how that's impacting them. So I'm just going to work this into the end here. Slight topic shift, but like Okay, Microsoft, a company that I used to cover full-time for TechCrunch back in the uh, mid-2010s. They had Bill Gates, then they had Steve Ballmer. They went from a technology visionary, if you will, to a salesperson. And then they swapped later on to Satya Nadella, who is a cloud person. And you can really see the impact of the CEO change on the company and the focuses Mm -hmm. thereof and so forth. And Steve Ballmer gets a bad rap. I've written about this. I think he's a better CEO than people give him credit for. But certainly with Satya coming over, you can see the change in focus at the firm and how they approach platforms and so forth. So even at a company the size of Microsoft, which is one of the larger companies in the world by valuation and human capital, employee size, you can have a change. And then, Marianne, there's this other company also in the technology space called Facebook. (laughs) Have you... If you heard of that one, it's actually now called Meta. They did a, a, a repaint of the uh, of the sign. Oh, okay, now I know who you're talking about. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, <laughs> I got to work on my jokes. They haven't changed CEOs because Mark Zuckerberg controls the company. You know, I wonder if, as we talk about what's going on with Kickstarter and City Block Health, and kind of thinking about the Microsoft context, if CEO shifts aren't actually a sign of strength. Because they shows that the company can have a second act, if you will. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was getting to as well. And and I think you're right. In some companies, there needs to be that kind of shift and change at the helm. And sometimes founders can make great CEOs for a little while, but then it's time to move on. Going back to the conversation earlier about how venture has changed, I'm amazed at how like the old rule of like, hey, cool, technologists have founded the company. They're brilliant. Woohoo. But we're going to bring in an adult, which an example of Google was Eric Schmidt. And Alphabet is doing fine. Turns out, after all this time, there's data points here that we could talk about for a long time. But Forge and SPACs. Marianne, how much have we talked about on the show about secondary markets and and so forth? Some, but... Tell us, tell us a little bit more or tell us what Forge does, because it took me a minute to get it. But once I understood, I thought it was pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Okay. So Forge is one of a few companies that facilitate secondary transactions in private company shares, which is a lot of jargon, I know. <laughs> um, private companies, aka startups and unicorns, companies that have not gone public yet. So we're talking about the companies that are on the pages of TechCrunch.com every day. And secondary liquidity is when shares that were purchased from a startup by a VC usually trade hands outside of a funding event. So essentially, let's say Marianne Incorporated raises $10 million at a $10 billion valuation. And then six months later, I call it Marianne. I'm like, listen, I think you're worth $20 billion. Can I buy some of your shares? We could do that on Forge. It could be set up and transferred in a way to provide liquidity to private companies. Does that help? Is that yeah, enough? I think it's a fascinating model, actually. How unique is it, though? I don't, is it like the only company doing this? Are there others? Shares Post, I think, is also in the space. Mm-hmm. I know the NASDAQ is working on something about this. Mm-hmm. I would say an emerging category. And I think driven by the fact that there are so many unicorns now, as right. we discussed, and the right. fact that they're not going public, as we've also discussed. Right. Um, but Forge did via a SPAC. And Marianne, it didn't flop. 
So I think yeah, a round of applause this is, is, is in order. Probably the biggest reason we're talking about this. I mean, not that Forge isn't interesting because I think it is very interesting, but it did go public via SPAC. It did really, really well, actually. I think shares were up 10% early trading. I don't oh, know where they are now. It did much better than that. I just pulled out the chart now. So all, all SPACs started trading at $10 per share because that's where they're kind of priced and so mm-hmm. forth. It reached $24 and change per share. 27, so I'm sorry, nearly $27 per share at the peak. It's down to twelve sixty, dollars but that's still up 25% from its essential IPO price. So rather good performance, I think. It is. And it's a rare example of a good performance from a SPAC or resulting from a company going public via SPAC. So I think this also points to the strength of fintech and not to keep, you know, keep talking about fintech because that is what I cover, but but it does continue to pop up as kind of an outlier uh, in terms of like venture funding now going public. Would you agree? Well, I mean, fintech is an outlier in that of all the venture categories out there, it's the single biggest one aside from what you might just call software, which is more of like a a method versus a vertical, if you will. The thing we always draw at this point in time is like fintech was roughly 20% of all venture capital dollars in the last year, quarter, five years, whatever. It's been this huge chunk for so long. My question is, has it produced enough outlier wins to make up for the outlier amount of investment? And that chime isn't public yet, Yeah, right? Right. It remains to be seen. But I do think that this is interesting about Forge. I'm going to be curious to see how it continues to perform. I want to throw in one more little caveat about Forge. When I wrote about this deal, I ran the numbers on cash collection as part of the SPAC combination. And if you want to know more about this, you're wrong. You don't. It's very complicated and annoying. <laughs> but essentially, every SPAC deal has various buckets of money that are involved. And there's a thing called redemptions in which people who invested in the original SPAC can kind of back out at the last minute. And I read the numbers a little bit wrong and was kind of positive-ish about the level of redemptions that Forge saw. And mm-hmm. then some people reached out to me via private message, let's say. And we're like, actually, I ran the numbers. And if you make these assumptions, it's actually pretty sharp. And so we may have seen a higher level of redemptions in the Forge deal than I expected, which is ironic because all oh, those people could have made hella money. And so they actually backed out of the spec that was going to do the best. They didn't know that, but it's just one of those little ironies. Yeah. And there's another irony in this, right? Like that this company is, it helps people invest in unicorns, which could help these companies stay private longer. Is that right? Am I getting this right, Alex? Okay. So there's two things going on here. And and now we are in the weeds. And so if you're listening to this, not live, you can skip ahead 30 seconds. If you're (laughs) listening to us live, you're stuck with me. Sorry. The SPAC deal went well. So Forge just showed the market that you can take a technology company public now and do well. That should encourage unicorns as a general asset class to to go go public. public, Which would make the number of companies that you could buy secondary shares of be smaller. On right? Forge, be smaller. Yeah. Okay. So the better Forge's IPO does, the more it might actually restrict its own market, which is hilarious to me. Yes. Um, uh, we I don't agree. usually see companies have those tensions. Back. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that irony was worth mentioning. This is what happens when I drink too much coffee in the morning <laughs> and I'm writing through a piece and I'm like, ooh, idea. Ah, and I just like don't stop. Love and it. that's how we ended up here. But let's wrap the news segment and talk very briefly about your upcoming fintech column really quick and what it's transforming into in about a month's time. Yeah, yeah. So for maybe six to eight weeks, I don't even remember anymore. I've been publishing a fintech 
column that's been headlined FinTech Roundup every Sunday, and that is going to turn into an official newsletter. Tentative day is now May 1st. It was supposed to be this month. It's been pushed out a little bit, but that's okay. It's for good reason. It'll be worth the wait, I promise. So if you're interested and you want to get it in your inbox, you can go to techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters and sign up for it. And we haven't put the name out yet. So is it just written down as like FinTech newsletter? FinTech Roundup for now. FinTech Roundup. Okay, cool. I know the current proposed name. I have also been told that I'm not allowed to tell you the proposed name. <laughs> so I won't. So that way I don't get bleeped. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will say that the name Marianne has in mind is quite good. It's exciting. I mean, Marianne, you are literally my favorite FinTech reporter, hands down. So I'm looking forward to getting more of you and more of your, your wit down the road. Thank you. And I have to give credit to you for helping me come up with the name. Well, now I just sound like a jerk. No, no, <laughs> the, no, no. The no, name no. is great. <laughs> not yeah, a- and I came up with it. <laughs> No, but it's true. It's so funny. I just have to quickly share that we were going back and forth on Slack about the name for so long. And it wasn't until we talked about it via Zoom that we kind of nailed it. So sometimes it really helps to actually like talk about something, not Slack. Slack is good at some things. Headlines, yes, but I think coming up with like witty mononyms or kind of like double names is, is harder. Right. Before we shut up and answer any questions, if there are any, I have been given something to read. So I'm going to do that now. Oh, yes, this is actually very, very important. So essentially, TechCrunch Sessions Mobility is coming May 18th and 19th. It'll also be online on the 20th. We're back into event season effectively. So get ready for that. We have early stage coming up. We got Disrupt in October, et cetera, et cetera. If you are going to come to the mobility event, which is our transit focused confab, you can use the code equity live 50 and you can save some amount of money on that we are just doing our part to promote the other parts of TechCrunch as an organization and Arianne, that'll take place in san mateo california yes san mateo california which if you don't know california is like san francisco but just down a little bit right kind of in between More- san jose and san francisco yes it's that bit that no one knows exists unless they live <laughs> live down there it's actual silicon valley i guess is what i'm saying yeah yeah so uh, that's a pretty good discount code so if you're interested you should take advantage yeah, I'm going to be going to as many TC events this year as I can, not only because I want to listen to what happens, but also I want to hug everybody. That's the uh, that's the hope and the dream. I have been yeah, home too long. Is that how I think about yeah, it? Yeah, we yeah. all have. All right. Thank you, everyone, for coming out to the live shows. These were an experiment. They've actually gone rather well. We've actually really enjoyed them. We're also live on Twitter spaces and so forth, and we're going to keep trying to innovate and tinker around, but it's a fun project and still the best part of my week. So thank you for showing up so we can keep doing it. Marianne, you're an absolute treasure. Grace, same to you. And to Julio and Dennis and Yeshad and everyone else who makes this stuff happen on the back end, we appreciate you as well. And we'll be back two weeks live, but we'll be back Monday morning on your podcast feed. Bye. 